Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for this blessed word from your holy scripture, and we pray now for the Holy Spirit to come and to help us to understand, to help us to apply, to help us to respond with faith and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you ever go visit the city of Pisa, you're probably there to see the bell tower of their most famous cathedral. We know it as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Its construction began in 1173 AD. It was slow going and it was interrupted a number of times because of debt issues and wars. It was designed to have eight stories, but after the first five years, they only had two stories, but so far so good. It looked to be a marvelous marbled bell tower standing tall and strong next to a great cathedral. But in its fifth year of construction, while building the third story, everything began to lean. And it's because they discovered the foundation stones had been laid on soft soil consisting of clay, fine sand, and shells. Now, considering that they got the name of their town from the Greek word for marshy land, you would have thought that they had uh, an inkling that this was going to happen, but apparently that escaped everyone's attention. Everyone assumed this was a wonderfully constructed tower for five years, It looked just right. So they kept building until one day the weight of it all became just too much and its foundation began to give way. The tower wasn't completed until 1372. That's almost 200 years later. Now over that time, a number of architects and engineers tried to troubleshoot the lean, but there was just no way to compensate, no way to correct it. And so today, The Leaning Tower of Pisa stands as a stark illustration of what happens when a foundation problem initially goes unnoticed. When on the surface you look strong, you look well built, but underneath, and of course unnoticed, you're set to fall. And that's really, friends, the same idea that's being illustrated for us in this morning's parable. Over the summer, we've been going through the parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke, and we've arrived at the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. And out of these two characters, 
It's this Pharisee that everyone would have assumed is doing well spiritually. He was a member of the most well-respected, most highly regarded religious order of his day. And personally, he was a man of good morals and discipline. So on the surface, it all looked good. If you If you saw him walking home after just worshiping from the temple, you would have assumed that this man was right with God. You would have assumed that he was in right standing with God. That's what he assumed about himself, that he was right with God. But Jesus lifts the veil for us in this parable and exposes what's really at the bottom underneath the surface of this man's life. He was building on a weak foundation of self-righteousness, on the soft soil of trusting in oneself. So he's in danger of toppling, but of course, he doesn't see it yet. Even by the end of the parable, he doesn't recognize the danger he's in. He still thinks he stands tall and strong, and so does everyone else. They all assume the same thing, but assume the weight of his sin will be too much, and his foundation will give way. Well, friends, Jesus' point in this whole parable is to warn us of that very thing before our lives are set on a trajectory of self-righteousness, before it's just really too late. Because when it gives way, it's going to reveal that our lives were all along built on the wrong things and that we're actually not right with God. What becomes very clear in this parable is this, friends. You can be a religious person. You can be a very well-respected, well-liked religious person, but it's so much more important to be a justified person. And don't assume that's the same thing. I think that was the Pharisee's mistake. He was content to be a religious man but he wasn't a justified man. So friends, you want to be justified. And I hope that will become clear by the time we're done. I hope by the end of this morning together, you will have a clear sense of what it means to be justified and why you want to be that person, the person that walks away from a time of worship like this with a clear sense that you are right with God. Now, if that's going to happen, and there are three things that we need to recognize. If you want to follow along uh, in your bulletin, there's an outline. There are three things we need to recognize. First, we need to recognize the central blessing of worship. Second, the way a Pharisee worships. And third, the way a justified sinner worships. The first thing to recognize is the central blessing of worship. Now, I'm not talking about the central aim of worship. The central aim of worship is, of course, the glory of God. When we gather together as the people of God to corporately worship our God through singing and and praying and preaching and the practicing of the ordinances, our central aim is to exalt His glory. It's to lift up His name. God is the goal of our worship not us, and not how we feel. 
Now, of course, that's not to say that we as worshipers and our feelings don't matter at all. Of course, there is a blessing to be experienced in worship. When these two men went up to the temple to, uh, uh, to worship, to, to offer up their sacrifices uh, on the temple mount to pray, they were going to worship, and they were seeking something from this time of worship. According to verse 14, we're told that one man received that very something and the other didn't. The tax collector, look at verse 14, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And so that's it. That's what they were seeking. They were seeking to be justified. They wanted the blessing of being right with God. That's what it means to be justified. That, my friends, is the central blessing of worship. When you walk out of a worship service like this one, I, I do hope you feel encouraged. I hope you feel inspired in your faith. I hope you feel, feel a greater love for God and a greater love for your neighbor. Those are all blessings that, that we hope you experience through worshiping with us. But if you don't experience justification, if you're not justified or assured of your justification, then you've missed the central blessing of worship. So what is this? What is justification? What does it mean? What does it mean for the tax collector after worshiping God for him to go down to his house justified? Well, simply, it means he was forgiven. He was pardoned. When he arrived at the temple, he was guilty before God, and he knew it. That's why he stood far off. That's why he called himself a sinner. He knew that he was a guilty sinner before God. And Jesus already alluded in his previous parable what is going to happen to guilty sinners if they die or if Christ returns and they've never been forgiven, if they've never been justified. They're going to be cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful. That's Luke chapter 12. They'll be tormented in Hades, Luke chapter 16. Or they'll be cast into hell, into Gehenna, again, Luke chapter 12. That's the danger that awaits if we remain in our guilt, if we remain in an unjustified state. The tax collector knew this, and that's why he came to the temple seeking justification, seeking forgiveness, and that is exactly what he got. By the time he left, he was declared not guilty. He was declared righteous. He was right with God. That's what it means to be justified. Now, what's interesting is that you wouldn't have expected this kind of language of justification to pop up here in this parable, because remember, the context is the temple. And normally, a sinner goes to the temple seeking a priest to declare him to be clean. That's just like in the previous chapter. In, in Luke 17, verse 14, that's where Jesus tells the ten lepers to do that very thing after he heals them, to go, show yourself to a priest, let a priest declare you to be clean. And so here, you would have expected verse 14 to say, this man went down from his house clean rather than the other. Cleanliness is a term more suited for the temple. Justification is more fitting for the courtroom. And so that's why we should pay even more attention when Jesus does the unexpected and when he speaks of justification. We, we should really just think about the difference here. When a priest 
declares you to be clean, he's only referring to your present state, that right now you're clean, but with no view really to your past. So you could have been utterly filthy yesterday, but if you today observe the law and you wash yourself ceremonially, well then now you're clean. So you're clean, but you still have a record. You still have a former reputation of being filthy. This, my friends, is where we need justification. When God declares you justified, he's referring to both your present state and to your past record. In justification, God not only does not count our sins against us, he counts Jesus' righteousness to us. So we're declared righteous, not just in terms of having washed up clean and, 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 and no longer being clean today. We are declared righteous in the sense that we have a new record where we were never filthy in the first place. We're brand new. That's what it declares. Think about it this way. We just passed the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. And if you drive around all those affected neighborhoods, you'll see that many of those flooded homes, many of the flooded homes that a lot of you here helped to clean out, you'll see that a number of them have been replaced. They have been torn down and completely rebuilt. They're new constructions. And since they're new constructions, their value as a, a, their home value is not affected by the flood. They can actually be listed as never flooded because they're brand new. Now, for other homes affected, for various reasons, they simply repaired and restored their home. New flooring was installed. The walls were redone. Furniture was, of course, replaced. The house was given a new coat of paint on the exterior and in the interior, But that house, as clean as it looked, as clean as it felt, still had a record. Still has a flood history, which, of course, is going to affect its value. You see, if salvation only consisted of cleansing us from sin, we would still carry around with us a record. We would have a sin history of having been once polluted, once stained by the filth of sin, we would carry around the reputation of a filthy sinner who just happened to clean up. And friends, the devil, the devil will take every opportunity he has to remind you that you are nothing more at the core than a dirty sinner who cleans up good. He'll tell you, oh yeah, sure, sure you're clean now, but you're flawed. You've got a past. You've got a history. And that affects your value. You're actually worthless. And how many times do we, do we buy into that lie that we're just worthless? So don't you see, what we need in addition to cleansing is justification. We need the sinless record of Christ imputed to us. We need his spotless reputation counted as ours so that we can counter the devil when he tries to accuse us. That's that's what's freely offered here 
in justification. That's the blessing. So let me ask you, is that what you were seeking when you came to worship this morning? What are you here for? I, I'm going to guess if you're here, you're probably here to feel encouraged, to feel strengthened, to feel comforted, to feel challenged. And how you feel is important, but what's far more important is how God feels about you. Has his holy wrath against your guilty sins been satisfied? Has his justice been served? Are you right with God? Does his justifying love cover you? That's the most important question. Are you justified? That's the central blessing of worship. That's the first point. The second thing we need to recognize is the way a Pharisee worships. Because he didn't receive the central blessing. He wasn't justified. So what went wrong here? What did he do wrong in the way that he worshipped, in the way that he prayed? Well, we don't have to look very far for an answer. Luke tells us what the problem is at the very start of the parable. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that right there is the problem with the way the Pharisee worships. He trusted in himself. He trusted in his own righteousness. He walked away from a time of worship without its central blessing because he looked to himself for reasons for why he should be right with God. And notice why he assumed that he was already righteous and why he didn't need to be justified. It was because he was comparing himself to others. And when he worships, when he prays, his eyes aren't lifted up to heaven. They're actually they're scanning the room. They're looking around at, at other worshipers to see how he measures up. It says in verse 9, that this parable was told to those who considered themselves righteous and who treated others with contempt. So again, comparison, comparing with other people. Listen to the Pharisee in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Comparing. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now notice how he's described as standing by himself, as if he's in some kind of class of his own. He, he stands apart from everyone else. And the thing is, in comparison to the people he's listing, in comparison to this tax collector, it's actually true. Like, friends, I, I think he probably was a good guy. You know, if you've been a student of the Scriptures long enough, you're just conditioned to view the Pharisee as a bad guy. Whenever you see Pharisee, you think, oh, villain, bad guy. They're the antagonist. They're the foil to Jesus and the apostles. And so when we read this parable, we can already predict that the Pharisee is going to be the man who goes home without being justified. But that wouldn't have been the case for Jesus' audience, for first century listeners. To them, the Pharisees were the good guys. 
they were very popular with the people because they were always resisting the elitism of the Sadducees, the other religious order of the day. And unlike the Sadducees, who were elitist, they were also anti-supernatural, and they rejected the inspiration of most of the Old Testament. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they took Scripture seriously. They were the ones trying to bring the nation back to the Bible. They were the ones who had garnered for themselves a reputation of being very serious when it comes to Scripture and holiness. And so we, read to, we need to read this parable from the eyes and the ears of a first century person. They would have assumed when he, at the start of this parable that the Pharisee is the one who's righteous. And, you know, it's, it's not like tax collectors have a you know, really great reputation today, but, you know, back then they were more than just a nuisance. Tax collectors in those days were considered wretched traitors. They were the ones who colluded with their occupiers, the Romans, and they were known to overtax in order to line their own pockets. So I know most of us are conditioned to think Pharisee bad, I mean, uh, in tax collector good, but like I'm saying, it was quite opposite for Jesus' audience. They would have assumed the Pharisee was the hero and the tax collector was the villain. It would be like telling a parable today about a biblical scholar who is an elder in his church. He's a community activist. He's just an overall good guy. And he is in the same worship service as a drug dealer or a human trafficker, someone who has made quite a living at the expense of others and who hasn't darkened the church door for years. There are natural assumptions to to be made there. One is a very upright, religious person who is well-liked and well-respected, and the other is a scumbag. Look at the Pharisee's prayer again. Look at his prayer. I, I, I don't think there's any reason to think he's lying when he says he doesn't extort people and he doesn't steal their money. I don't think he's lying when he says he cares about justice. He's not unjust, and he's a good husband probably. He's faithful to his wife. Who would you rather have living next door to you? And just look at his devotional life. He says in verse 12 that he fasts twice a week. The law only mandated a fast one day in the entire year. That's on the Day of Atonement. And so this guy is is fasting a hundred times more than the law requires. What about you? What about me? I mean, this guy's going a hundred times more. And, and while the law only says you are to tithe your crops, this guy is giving a tenth of everything he owns. He's very generous. So if this parable was about who would you rather have to babysit your kid or to house-sit for you while you're on vacation, well, then this would end very differently. Give me the religious guy, right? Give me the guy with the track record of not stealing and cheating, of, of, of being very disciplined and very generous. I'll take him. But that's not what this parable is about. It's not about who's moral or who's religious. It's about who's justified. 
And comparing yourself to others is not going to help you answer that question. In fact, it will likely fool you. It will confuse you into thinking that you're doing just fine on your own. If what you're trying to figure out is if you are right with God, then comparing yourself to other people would make no sense at all. It would be like visiting your doctor and she asks you, so what's wrong? And you spend the entire visit listing out all the ways that you are not sick, like all those other people in the waiting room. Like it's, 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 no, it's no surprise if you go home still sick without a cure. We know it doesn't make sense to compare to other people, but we do it all the time. We're always comparing because, let's face it, it, it feels good. It makes you feel better. You feel more confident in your faith when you compare yourself to struggling, weaker Christians. Like, it really just encourages you to think, Whew, man, thank God I don't have to deal with that. Or, you know, thank God I don't have to go through that again. But if you're going to take that approach and compare, well then at least compare yourself to those who also surpass you in righteousness. If you're going to go down this path, well then go read a Christian biography of, of some missionary who gave his or her life for the cause of Christ among the unreached of the world. Go read that and be humbled. I think it's too easy to compare yourself to struggling saints. Next to them, you're doing great. But by that very same logic, there's always going to be a saint out there who is more superior to you in righteousness. And so if you go down that path and you compare yourself, it's always going to lead to despair. There's always someone, yes, that you can look down on, but there's always someone ahead of you as well. It's better to not compare yourself to others at all. The only comparison should be your life to the holy standard of God's righteous law. Compared to his righteousness, friends, we all fall short. I just think about how in your, your word processor, you got that little button, right? That, that button to push that says justify. And what it, what it does is it justifies the text, you know, aligning it to some standard point. You know, you, you have that little format button. Well, just think about it this way. The law of God is that standard. And to be justified means that your life is aligned to it. You, you, your life, and, and I don't just mean your actions and your behaviors, but also your thought life and your emotional life are perfectly aligned with the righteousness of God's law. If that's what it means to be justified, then who here can compare? Who here is still trusting in themselves that they are righteous? Is anyone still counting on their good deeds? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to trivialize or to belittle our good deeds or our good behavior. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It's, it's something to be thankful to God for if you're a just man who can be trusted with other people's money and trusted with other people's wives because you're faithful to your own. But are you putting your trust in that? in your righteous deeds, in your performance as a Christian? That's the question, and that's the problem. 
It's when your relationship with God, when your confidence to approach God is centered on you and what you do for him and for others. The problem is when you become the subject and principal actor of your own prayer life. Did you see that, that prayer of this Pharisee? Just look at his prayer again in verse 11. Notice how the subject of the prayer is actually the man himself. And all the verbs, do you see how they're all in the active voice? Meaning they express what the subject has done. So this entire focus of the prayer is on the man and what he has done. Now contrast that to the next prayer, the prayer of the tax collector. It's simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here, the subject is God. And notice how the verb is in the passive voice. That means the focus is entirely different. The focus is on God and on what he does. This guy came to the temple not to list out all of his achievements, not to compare himself to other people. No, he came simply seeking mercy. He came to truly pray because prayer is an expression of dependence on God. This leads to our third point. Let's consider the way a justified sinner worships. When we look at this tax collector, what we see is a man who has a clear grasp of reality. Unlike the Pharisee, he doesn't have an inflated view of himself. He, he doesn't trust in himself that he is righteous. He didn't treat others with contempt because Really, he's more concerned with his own sin. He held himself and his own sinfulness in contempt. Notice in verse 13 how it says he's standing far off. It's because he's just too ashamed to approach God. He can't even bring himself to, to look up to heaven. He just stares down and, and beats his breast, which is a, a, a uh, recognized sign of contrition and sorrow. And then he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what's worth noting here is that the word for be merciful is not the typical Greek word for mercy. It's actually a word that's related to the word for propitiation. It literally says, God, be propitiated to me, a sinner. What this is, is it's a direct request for God to turn aside his anger, which the tax collector knew was rightly directed at his sins. So to propitiate, in case you're not familiar with that term, it's a religious word. It means to appease or to turn aside or to satisfy the anger of God. This tax collector, he recognizes that he's a sinner and his sin, like all sin, displeases the all-good, all-holy God. And so in order to be right with God, in order to be justified, the wrath of God against our sins needs to be propitiated. And that's what he asks for. That's why some translations put it like this. God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. That's another way to translate this verse. Is basically asking God, God, let your anger against my sin be removed, be turned aside. Please be merciful to me in this way. 
this tax collector, he knows that there's nothing in terms of who he is or what he has done that is going to serve as a good reason for God to turn aside his anger. He can't justify that request based on his own righteousness. And that is why he simply throws himself on the mercy of God. Like we said, first century listeners would have assumed at the start that the Pharisee is the hero and the tax collector is the villain. But of course, by the end of the parable, there's this reversal. But here's where, friends, we have to be very careful because it would still be a mistake to reverse roles and to now claim that the tax collector is the hero. I'm sure he probably would have been the first to tell you that he's no hero. He's not the good guy. He hasn't done anything deserving of a hero's praise. He hasn't done anything deserving of that kind of acclaim. There's only one hero here, and he's the one telling this parable. Because Jesus came for this very reason. He came to be the propitiation for sins. He came to be the hero, to die for others so that God can be propitiated, so that God can be merciful to sinners like the tax collector, to sinners like you and me. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ made propitiation for our sins by bearing our sins on the cross. And there he died a hero's death, substituting himself in our place. And there he received the full measure of God's wrath that was directed towards our sin, the sins that he bore for us. And there on the cross, Christ was forsaken so that we might be reconciled, that we might be justified by God. This is the way a justified sinner worships. You plead the mercy of God. You trust not in your righteousness, but in the death of Christ as the propitiation for your sins. Justified sinners worship with an abiding trust in the grace of God alone to save them by faith alone in Christ alone. Friends, is that how you worship? Please don't be like the Pharisee and leave this service without its central blessing. And thankfully, Jesus makes it very clear at the end of this parable why someone would fail to receive this blessing of justification. So listen carefully to verse 14. He tells you, this is why you might miss this blessing. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For, here's why, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. Friends, it's pride. Exalting yourself. That's what's going to leave, leave you empty. It's because of pride you might find yourself on the road home without justification. Self-righteous pride is the danger here. When Charles Spurgeon preached this parable, he imagined a conversation between two demons in hell who see this Pharisee arrive in hell. When one demon asks the other, what did he do? Why did he come to hell? Was he an extortioner? No, no, he was quite generous. He tithed much more than others. Oh, then was he unjust? Oh, no, no, not at all. Well, then was he an adulterer? No, he was actually very faithful to his wife. Well, then why is he here? Because he wouldn't go to heaven by grace alone. He kept trying to go there by his own righteousness. For some reason, he wouldn't give up his pride. He wouldn't bow his head to Christ. And that's why he's here with us in hell. Friends, I, I tell you, I, I'm thankful to God that I am not a worse sinner than I already am. And you should be thankful, too, that you are not a worse sinner than you already are. I think the world would generally consider us to be religious people. I mean, we gather here on a Sunday morning. Instead of enjoying our day, we gather to worship. They would say, man, these are religious people. But it's not the same as justified people. So don't make the same mistake as the Pharisee and trust in your own religiosity and righteousness. Give up your pride. Don't let it keep you from heaven. Don't let your pride keep you from the central blessing of worship. Bow your head to Christ. Plead his mercy and trust in his righteous life and propitiatory death. Father, humble us this morning. By your word and spirit, may you do a work in each of our hearts that we may be humbled, that we may be trusting of your gospel of your son's death, life, death, and resurrection. Oh, Lord, may we renounce our self-righteousness and throw ourselves upon your mercy. Oh, Lord, do this work in us, we pray. Amen.